and welcome to School of Hustle. I'm your host, Sarah, and this is the show where we chat with everyday entrepreneurs about everything that goes into starting a new venture. Hispanic Heritage Month is here, and for this episode, I am speaking with Maricel Salazar. She is a member of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, a food writer, and a show host. She hosts United States of Spirits on the Spirits Network and Driven to Dine on MSG Networks. And her culinary writing has been featured in Michelin, Insider, Vine Pear, Thrillist, The Tasting Table, Pure, Wow, NYC Go, and Martha Stewart Living. She's also the founder of Do West, a brand communications agency. Maricel, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And I want you to follow me around every day because <laughs> What an introduction. And doing your like, intros. Yeah, I was like, wow, I do sound impressive. <laughs> you are impressive. And that's why I'm so glad we're here in this beautiful park in New York, yes. enjoying the sunshine and chatting about your career because you know so much about how to get started in food writing and hosting. And so many people want to get into that industry. Yeah. So I'd love it if you could tell us your backstory in your own words. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting journey because when I first graduated school, there were no programs for food writing. Becoming a food writer was not was not a job that your parents were like, yeah, you should do this. You were succeeding. Exactly. <laughs> you should do this role where you're probably not going to get paid very much. And there is no, there was no clear cut path for how to yeah. become a food writer. But I knew I wanted to do mm -hmm. it because I've always grown up loving to tell the stories of people and the people behind the food. Yes. And I had this I had this ratatouille moment when I was in Spain. I was studying in Madrid as a student and I was at El Mercado de San Miguel. I bit into an anchovy stuffed olive and it was like a flavor explosion in my mouth. Not to get all Guy Fieri on you, but no, like but that it's funny to me because like you're already getting into the food element of how how just eating something has changed your entire life. <laughs> it completely changed the course of my journey forever. But I went to school at Cornell University and I graduated and everyone in my family is either a consultant or works for the federal government. So naturally that's what I thought I would end up doing too. Right. Especially because I come from a single parent household. Mm -hmm. I've grown up with my mother as the primary caretaker. Yeah. So being, being a food writer was flying in the face of everything that I was taught as a, as a child of a single parent. Financial independence, uh, professional values, stability. Yeah. But I, I, I wanted it. I just didn't know how to get it. So I actually worked for a management consulting company straight out of college, mm. and then I went to work at a healthcare treatment advisory firm in D.C. as my second job. Okay. The entire time, though, I had this burning desire to try to figure it out. So while I was working full time. I was a virtual editorial assistant for a website here in New York City oh. and I started very slowly reaching out, pitching myself to very small publications. I was not paid anything, mind you. Well, that's the <laughs> thing. I, that's uh, what I'm curious about because I also have done some writing, not food writing. I, I started doing travel writing and the first... Uh, the first jobs you get are normally unpaid Correct. and that's why people don't really encourage people to go into this career path Right, but obviously you have gone past the not being paid to right. being paid and you've yes. even transformed into a show host Yeah, so 
what was your first job in, in writing, and then how did you manage to get start getting paid in it? Too? Yes, that's a great question. How do you, yeah, people ask me that all the time? Paid. How do you make money? <laughs> how does that work? And yeah. it was truly, you know, big but fish. You know, eat. That's when you do something fun. When they ask yes. you, how do you make money? Because it seems like you're just <laughs> not working. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If, you know, like yourself. If you saw the behind the scenes of like how my actual day-to-day life goes, you might be like, I don't know if food writing is for me or hosting because, you know, it appears easy mm-hmm. and graceful on camera, on the paper, yeah. and it's all constructed to look that way. But it's like with any gifted athlete. They make it look easy, but they've had years of training and they know just how hard it is. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. And the way that I ascended was big fish eat little fish. The more I wrote for smaller publications, the more I had backed up in my arsenal, mm-hmm. my portfolio, to show to medium-sized publications, yeah. hey, here's what I can do and here's what I've done. Yeah. And then once the medium-sized publications started coming through with work and assignments, that's when I started pitching to even larger publications. And eventually, the more that my name went out there, yes, it fell. So the more smaller publications that I wrote for, eventually I started to build this portfolio and medium-sized publications took notice of me and I would pitch to them and they gave me a shot. And then once I had enough medium-sized publications under my belt, I started pitching to larger publications, you know, these national or international ones that you may know of, like you said, Mm -hmm. Michelin Guide, Tasting Table, Zagat. And then it turned to a point where I wasn't reaching out to them anymore. They were coming to me. And that's where the that's the moment that everyone wants to be at. Right. But this was this was several years in the yeah. making. This was not an overnight thing. This was no. every day after my full-time jobs, I would work into the night, my weekends, my lunch breaks mm-hmm. to make it to make it all happen and it does take time. I knew for myself in order to really take it to the next level to make this a viable career. I had to do it full time. Yeah. Because I was I was half invested in both camps. And so in 2014, I got laid off for my first time. My company was going through a downsize and pretty much the entire department that I worked in got let go. And at that moment it was the scariest thing that had ever happened in my professional life. But it could have been a gift and I It was my biggest blessing, yes. Sarah. Like I gave myself six months to make it work, and I said, if after six months, this food writing, however I want to shape my path, mm-hmm. doesn't pan out or doesn't look like it's amounting into something, yeah. all right, I'll go back, I'll look for consulting work, and there we go. But it sounds like, you know, a lot of it is talent, but a lot of it is pitching yourself. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are not comfortable with self-promotion. Correct. But in this industry, you have to self-promote because if you don't do it no one's gonna know who you are until you start getting picked up by all these different networks and all these different uh, companies that will promote you yes it's it's like I say like on the web page of do West my private brand communications agency from the get-go the website landing page says it's simply not enough to exist you must be heard exactly I love that it's just like hits you right off the bat and it's so true it was uncomfortable and unnatural to me to toot my own horn because as a food writer I was so accustomed to telling other people's story not my story I remember telling myself Marisol talk about yourself the way you introduced me so beautifully (laughs) you know people need to know who you are and what you do and what you can do yeah now 
it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes. So tell me, how has that impacted your career? I know that you you write a lot about Latina like yes. organizations and Hispanic food, and you create great recipes. Check out our Instagram. There's some great <laughs> great recipes there. Yes. So how have you been incorporating that, and how has that impacted your career? I never made it a declarative statement that I was going to cover Hispanics, Latinos, BIPOC, or minorities in my work. Mm -hmm. It was something that I always just did because I wrote from who I knew and what I knew and my own life experiences. Yeah. It, it was truth, it was my truth, and it was also my, my bridge to connect with other people who might have been shy to tell their story. Mm -hmm. Because of coronavirus and the racial unrest that we're experiencing in this country, I made it declarative, even to my publications and outlets, I have it, you know, I have all of this work showcased on my yeah. social media. This is who I'm covering and here is why. Because I, as a Hispanic female, of course, I've been knowingly stereotyped, I've been unknowingly stereotyped. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many chances I've been passed over just because of my name yeah, or maybe people looking sad. at my background or how I sound. I don't have an accent. I learned English when I was very young, but I can only imagine mm -hmm. how much more difficult it would be for me if I did have an accent, if I did look just like a stereotype. And one of the one of the pieces, I guess, in my work that I've pivoted to that I'm extremely proud of is working with undocumented restaurant workers, mm -hmm. telling their stories, and yes. this has been... There was a great article that you were just quoted in. Yeah. Let me read the quote to you all. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so this was in uh, New York One. Yes. You know, undocumented workers are a huge part of New York City's restaurant scene, yeah. which is struggling now, so the article kind of talked about that. But you said, it's not anyone's dream to live in a country illegally. It's not anyone's dream to have to get smuggled into a country and have to find a job that might put them in jeopardy. Now, exactly. I'm married to a, a Guatemalan. <laughs> he like came here um, illegally, but now he's a citizen, so everyone relax. Okay, it's all good. So I, I understand this personally, yes. but I'd love for you to share more about it from your perspective as well for those yeah. listening. It was really important for me to tell the stories of undocumented restaurant workers because they are voiceless. Mm -hmm. They're free to speak up and defend themselves given their visa status, given the fact that they fear losing their job mm -hmm. and they have families to feed, people who rely on them. Yes. One of the biggest difficulties in pursuing this was developing the trust and relationships with these undocumented workers. You know, it's one thing to go back of house to a kitchen and say, hi, thank you so much for a wonderful meal, and another to get somebody to tell them their, their most sensitive secret. Yeah. Because they're scared. They are, and they, they just come here to work. Right. That's it, they're not trying to take anything. I mean, they're some of the most hard workers I've ever met in my life. Absolutely. All they want to do is come to this country and work, and yeah. work, 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 just to get a little bit so of something to help. So send back to their family normally. But and, they and even invest in the the local economy yes. and the internet in the domestic economy. You know, undocumented workers pay something to the tune of eleven billion dollars in taxes yes. every year. They're taxed at a higher average, eight percent, than the top one percent of Americans, which is something like five percent. So mm -hmm. everything that they financially put into the economy, they do not receive back in benefits. And there was one person who was really special to me, his name is David, 
who I developed a close relationship with. He's an undocumented worker and he managed to work his way up through the restaurant industry and become a sous chef, which is oh, wow. one of the top positions that you can have in a kitchen brigade. So not only do I now cover undocumented workers, but I'm also co-hosting, I'm, I'm hosting and I'm executive producing a documentary that talks about the effects of coronavirus on restaurants. And part of that has to do with undocumented workers. Yeah, so what are all these undocumented workers doing now that many of them have lost their jobs in the restaurant industry? Sarah, they have nothing. They're not eligible for the, sti the $1,200 stimulus checks. They're not eligible for unemployment benefits. They can't apply to small business loans. They are relying either upon, if they're fortunate enough, mm -hmm. to have a restaurant job or on, crowd for on crowdsourced funding. So like, uh, like GoFundMe, then like that. Exactly. Okay. Speaking of crowdfunding, um, a lot of them don't have the resources Correct. to understand how to uh, receive it. They are reliant upon somebody else, either their restaurant, their managers, mm -hmm. a family friend who might have access to internet, act, who knows how to set these things up. Yeah. There's just so many limitations and inaccessibility to resources. A lot of these people are waiting in lines for food at soup kitchens. I, you know, there's wonderful organizations out there like Rethink Food and World Central Kitchen who are providing these meals to those in need in this documentary. I, I highlight the Restaurants Act of 2020. This is a $120 billion grant for the restaurant industry. You don't have to pay it back. That's the, unlike PPP, unlike EIDL, you do not need to pay this back. And what's even more special is that they've set aside something to the tune of 20 to $60 million for underrepresented groups for women, for immigrants, for minorities, mm. for people who may not have greater access to resources, they've specifically set aside funds to make sure that you will receive this money. So how can we make sure that the people that need this money the most know that they can get this? I mean, first, Restaurants Act really needs to get passed. That's first and yeah. foremost. It needs to happen. One in five restaurants have already closed since the start of pandemic, and they yeah. estimate that 90% of restaurants will close at the end of the year. It's so, so even sad. If you can't think about, you know, like, if people don't have empathy for anybody else, have empathy for yourself and think about what your life will look like without With restaurants. No restaurants. Exactly. And that's why my work has drastically pivoted as a food writer to, you know, to making this documentary so that hopefully this act can get passed. You know, I've, I've shot with some incredible people, including Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy, Camilla Marcus from Westbourne. Um, Andrew Ridgey from the NYC Hospitality Alliance, Salil Mehta from Laut Singapore, and I'll also be shooting um, at 11 Madison Park with the founders of Rethink Food. That's phenomenal. When do you expect this documentary to come out? We want this to come out really quick. We're in the final stages of filming the okay, last couple stages, but we want it to get picked up and distributed as soon as possible so that we can make this change so yeah. people can it's about spreading yeah. the knowledge and letting people know that this is something that really needs to be correct passed and it's so emotional like it's it's been a heavy documentary because yeah. when you have people pouring out their struggles and their pain to you it's you know it is like fuel it does give me inspiration and feel like i'm going to do everything i can in my power as a mm -hmm. food writer as a host mm -hmm. to help you because you you need your voice amplified and if i could do that for you 
I will do whatever I can. Yeah, and I saw that you wrote an article recently about 25 Latino-owned businesses yes. in New York. Yes. So that's one of the things you're doing, Correct. which is great, spreading the knowledge. If you haven't read that, check it out. Go to some of those yes. restaurants, bars, businesses. Support. The food will be delicious. I can assure <laughs> you of that. Latin food is delicious. Yes. Um, what other things are you doing besides this documentary in your writing side and your hosting side? You know, like everyone, we were chatting before how, how we pivoted yeah. in our, our business. Everyone had to pivot. If you did it, you're one of the very lucky few. Exactly. And for myself as a food writer, so I was covering fine dining, I was covering travel, I was covering restaurants. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest ways that I've not only pivoted, but I've pivoted in support of the Hispanic and Latinx community is through cooking. Mm -hmm. I've actually always cooked. I'm known as this fine dining food writer, restaurant writer, travel writer, but I've always cooked. I actually was a chef's assistant for several years here in New York City. I had a short stint as a wholesale granola business. I would bake and deliver to hotels in Soho. Um, wow. I've been a cater waiter, you know, I've, I've done it all. And so I have great respect for those in back of house because I know how hard it is. And yeah, I and I think that's what makes you so special because you can see all the angles of it, which makes you a great writer, a great host, um, because you're not going to you. judge anyone for being a dishwasher. Correct. You've done all the jobs. You know what it's like. It makes you appreciate it more. Exactly. I mean, that's what I always say. My apartment doesn't have a dishwasher, so it keeps me humble. <laughs> so you are the dishwasher. I am the dishwasher. <laughs> Very humbling. <laughs> And cooking Hispanic food, Panamanian food, Cuban food, mm -hmm. but then also, you know, cooking recipes that I learned growing up, which are outside of my countries, mm -hmm. um, Peruvian food, Ooh, Mexican food, you know, in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area, there's a lot of immigrant communities, primarily El Salvadoreño, Guatemalan, Honduran, um, some Mexican, Peruvian, of course. So I grew up also eating these foods from other Latin American countries and learning how to make them myself. And you're starting to incorporate that into the recipes that you show people? Right, so I've been working with magazines on doing video demos, showing wow. people how to cook very simply. Like, another culture's food doesn't have to be daunting. And I thought, no, how can that... I translate that to something that's digestible and delicious looking And for not folks? overwhelming to someone that's not in that culture. Exactly. Yeah. Respecting the culture, the indigenous, you know, the indigenous folks that also created what is Latin American food is hugely important. Yeah. We have the Kuna Indians in Panama. Oh, okay. Um, and they're one of the people who brought up chocolate for us. Yeah. It's super important. Chocolate, so I, see? Chocolate that is alone, amazing. Like, that's a huge contribution. We should all just be. Panama also has the best coffee in the entire world. It is Ooh, a champion, really? world-rated coffee-growing region. We just sold a pound of coffee for over $1,000. So if you <laughs> love luxury, you should get your hands on this geisha coffee from Lamastas. Oh, OK. Latin American food is not just tacos, burritos, and enchiladas. There's so much more depth exactly. It, it's so diverse. And I mean, that's it's so what I different show. depending on where. Like, if you look at Peruvian fruit food versus Mexican food, they are completely totally different, different cuisines. Yes. Yeah. You know, something that's really fun that I've been tapping into is Panama, where I'm originally from, has such a strong relationship with America, mm -hmm. and so many interesting dishes were born out of the Panama Canal Zone. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's a huge American influence there. And mm -hmm. one of the dishes which I'll be making um, for a publication, it's called Johnny Marzetti. Oh. So Johnny Marzetti is an Italian pasta dish. Okay. An Italian pasta dish that was popularized, I think, in Ohio. And Americans loved it so much. So when the Americans were in the Panama Canal Zone working on the construction, 
the Panamanians in the cafeterias would feed them their version of Johnny Marzetti because they knew they liked it, but they would add olives to it. Okay. So this like American Panamanian pasta dish. So you've written about so many different restaurants in New York. Yes. What is your favorite Latinx restaurant? <gasps> you know, That's this hard, is, I know. It's this hard. is the toughest question. And no matter, different. <laughs> no matter how many times I get asked, the feeling of panic is always the same. Um, <laughs> the feeling of panic. Yeah, because I do have so many restaurants that I love depending upon my mood, my situation. Mm. Um, but in regards to Hispanic restaurants or Latinx restaurants, I, I've been going through like a Dominican food movement. Mm. I really love Gina's. Okay. Um, Gina's in Alphabet City. I love Puerto Viejo, which is another Dominican spot. Mm. This one's in Brooklyn. Um, I'm like making a mental list yes, here. There is this incredible Mexican deli near my apartment called Zaragoza. Okay. And they they offer all Mexican products como queso crema, queso fresco, um, la lechera, all these like very original Mexican products. But they also make their own homemade moles, the owners from Puebla. Mm. They make these incredible burritos, like these beef burritos. Um, and also goat burritos. Is this the one that you featured on your Instagram? Yes, I did, yeah, and it's with I the sauces in the shape so of the Mexican good. flag. Yeah. Incredible. Amazing. And then, of course, there's, you know, my study favorite, which is La Mordada in the Bronx. La Mordada is a Oaxacan Mexican restaurant, and it's run by a family of undocumented workers. And oh. what they do is so magical because they also really, they really respect the indigenous cultures across mm. their menu. But not only are they this incredible Michelin big gourmand restaurant, mm -hmm. but their ingredient is activism. They're a safe oh, space beautiful. for the community in the Bronx. Um, you know, their door even reads refugees welcome. So wow. it's not only this incredible place to go eat uh, pambazo, moles, como burritos, but it's a space for the community too. Wow. They're great, please check them out. Yeah. How do you think non-Hispanic people can help support the Hispanic community better? That's a great question, and I think it all it all boils down to don't judge so quickly. I think yeah. their work ethic is unparalleled. Mm -hmm. You know, they they work so much and they ask for so little. So I would say, don't make assumptions about anyone. You know, Hispanic or not. Yeah. You know, I think that's the first step, and then the second step is, you know, think about within the Latinx community. You know, we need to have reforms ourselves. How can we better support each other? Yeah. Latinx to Latinx. What are we doing to promote from within? What are we doing to elevate our fellow Latina, Latino, Latinx mm -hmm. person? You know, and you know, it's also our leaders within being yeah. better leaders. Our own leaders need to step up to the plate for us. And then again, it's hopefully folks like myself, use the gifts and talents that you have to not only elevate yourself, yeah. but try to bring up other people. There's, I was interviewing, um, this incredible pastry chef for a story I'm working on for Zagat for Hispanic Heritage Month. Her name's Paula Velez. She is this incredible pastry chef in Washington, D.C. She works at Maiden and Compass Rose. And I, I, had, I had the very good fortune of talking to Rosa Parks' cousin, Dr. Angela Williamson-Sadler. And she said to me, you know, the civil rights movement is everybody's movement because Latinx were brought up by the civil rights movement. Yeah. You know, the civil rights movement allowed the space for Latinx to be in the same room as mm -hmm. a white person. Mm -hmm. And so that's also something that I think is very impactful. You know, as Latinx, we also need to, you know, be accepting of the black community, communicate with our fellow brothers yes. and sisters because 
this is all this all all affects us and it is my greatest honor and privilege as a food writer being bilingual being latina to use my profession and my work and whatever voice that i have to try to tell these stories to get these people put on the map and not just the figurehead hispanic chefs that you know are already popularized ones, yeah. not already the big ones we have the big ones what are we doing to bring up the people who have it so sometimes the best food is like the taco guy that serves the tacos from the truck under the highway yes absolutely. i've had better tacos there than in a gourmet mexican restaurant yes exactly yeah i mean it's it's talent across different levels yeah. and that's why it's it's something for me to be in a position to be a writer for the Michelin Guide, to be their only Latinx writer. Wow. There is assumptions made about Latin American food, that it's street food, it should be cheap, that mm -hmm. it's not classy. Well, when you have restaurants now like Cosme or Pujol, you know, that are world's 50 best, even one of my close family friends, his name is Mario Castrillon, he's a Panamanian mm -hmm. chef and he runs Maito. Okay. I had the pleasure of dining with Dominique Crenn, me at wow. Maito in my home country Panama. It is number 17 Latin America's world that 50 is best. It is Panamanian fine dining. So it's also to change the conversation of yeah. what Latin American food can be. It can be street food, it can be comida casera, mm -hmm. and it can be fine dining. Again, it's also people changing their mindset and their outlook of what it means to be Latin American. Yeah. Not just food, us, us too. Yeah, there's so much more to to Latinx than food. Exactly. Um, so speaking of Hispanic Heritage Month, what are you doing to celebrate? Oh my gosh, Sarah, I've been I've been cooking so much and the education comes from sharing the food, which is why I'm so excited to be working with my publications on these recipe videos to tell a little bit about the history, to put more Latin American cuisine on the map. My my biggest hope though is that this doesn't stop when Latinx Heritage Month stops. That's my biggest fear, that we're, we're caught up in a trend, we're caught up in a season. Yeah. It should be every day that it's celebrated. Yes, I completely agree. I think that all cultures should be celebrated regardless of where you're from, what language you speak, your economic status, or your education level. Something that I'm really hopeful of is I've started noticing publications when they do have a story that touches upon Latinx immigration, um, Hispanic cuisine, they're now reaching out specifically to me. And That's good. I think it's, a, it's very telling of the change in media culture where they are speak, they're seeking writers of that background to tell the stories because they can tell it best. Some folks that are doing, are doing it really well are Zagat, The Spruce Eats, Thrillist. You know, they have actively reached out and said, you know, and Eater too. Um, they've actively reached out to me and said, we know you cover this, we like your work, would you like to write it? Instead of me having to constantly pitching and be like, did you remember about this? Yeah. And here's why I should write it. It's, right. I, I love it and I hope, I hope I see more of it. And that came from all the hard work that you did over the years, building yourself up and never giving up. So those out there that want to be a food writer, don't give up on it. Don't give because up. it does take many years. And then someday I'll be interviewing you right in this book. <laughs> what is your advice to aspiring entrepreneurs out there? So my advice is something that I say time and time again, and it was told to me by the former food critic of The Washingtonian. His name is Todd Kleiman. He told me once I was a senior at school, in college, and I was lucky enough to get on the phone with him to ask him advice about food writing, and he said, Marisol, this is going to be hard. 
it's going to be very difficult, you will be told no a lot. But what do you do when something that you love doesn't love you back? You do it anyways. And I carry that advice with me every single day. And I would say that for anyone pursuing a passion, a goal, they want to turn it into a financially successful endeavor. You're going to get told no a lot. You really will. Rejection is a part of it. Just become used to rejection. It's, it's going to happen. It's nothing personal. We will feel it personally, but it will happen. You just do it anyways. Keep going. Um, the most successful people have been told no more than the least successful people. I can assure you of that. 100%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that same vein, I, I love telling stories about about other people, about food, the culture, who makes it, um, you know, trying to bring up workers' rights. And I, I truly hope that more publications, more more publications and more entities will continue to give me the opportunity and the honor to tell these stories because I hope to use my voice in the service of others. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful having you on the show, Maricel. So thank you to everyone that joined us and thanks to those who tuned in today. And if you want to learn more about Maricel Salazar, visit her at maricelsalazar.com and follow her on Instagram at maricelmsalazar. She has great ideas on Latin recipes and dining, so your taste buds will thank you. I can assure you of that. So that's all for this edition of School of Hustle. Keep up with other episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you can stream and download podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please consider leaving a review. It really helps us. Share with your friends, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Bye.